Welcome to Zebra Talks, where people living with hypermobility syndromes hear their experiences reflected in conversations with guest experts and fellow zebras living their best bendy lives. I'm your host, Dr. Libby Hinesley, physical therapist and author of Yoga for Bendy People. The information and opinions shared on this podcast should not be taken as medical advice and are not a substitute for diagnosis and treatment by a qualified healthcare professional. And now, let's get started with today's Zebra Talk. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Iris Warshall, who's going to share some insights into the connection between a neurodivergent and hypermobility. Iris Warshall is an autistic self-advocate and physical therapist specializing in supporting individuals with a variety of the health conditions more prevalent among autistic people, including hypermobility spectrum conditions, pelvic health concerns, chronic pain, dizziness, and vestibular dysfunction, and movement disorders. In addition to her clinical practice, Iris provides training on neurodiversity-affirming practice to physical therapists and other professionals. She is passionate about working to improve support for autistic individuals throughout the lifespan. Welcome, Iris. I'm so glad to have you on the podcast today. Hi, Libby. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here and to have this conversation. Great. Well, I think it's an important conversation and hopefully we'll connect some dots for some of our listeners. So I'd love to start out by asking you to describe some of your own experience with hypermobility and neurodivergence and basically describe how you came to do the work that you do now. Yeah, absolutely. I'll start with speaking to the neurodivergence piece. Despite the fact that I'm autistic, I wasn't aware that I was and didn't actually know much about autism and other forms of developmental neurodivergence until I became a parent to an autistic child and recognized a lot of these traits in myself. And what's really interesting to me is that I've been working with hypermobile patients for years before I started really learning a lot about neurodivergence. Then once I did So many questions that I had about what many of my patients needed really clicked for me. And then I realized I needed to help other clinicians start learning about how to better support their patients who were neurodivergent. So going back to my first professional experience learning about autism in physical therapy school 10 or 11 years ago, I learned a small amount about autism. It was fairly minimal, really. Mm -hmm. And I now know that there were a lot of things that weren't included in my education that really all physical therapists and all healthcare professionals should know. And unfortunately, the healthcare professions have historically based their understanding of autism entirely on observations made by non-autistic clinicians. Mm. And unfortunately, that has created a situation where we as clinicians are missing a lot of the important points about autism in our education. The little bit that I learned about autism in PT school was centered around the presentations of white cisgender male children, did not teach me anything about supporting autistic adults, and framed autism as primarily a behavioral condition in need of behavioral remediation. Mm -hmm. And we know now, well, more and more of us are coming to understand now that this way of thinking about autism is really missing a lot of things. It's getting some things wrong in the first place, which we'll talk more about later. 
And it's also just setting us up so that we're not teaching about the needs of a huge segment of the autistic population, which is incredibly diverse. And as healthcare professionals, we all work with autistic patients of all ages, all genders, all races and ethnicities. At least one in 36 people of all ages are autistic. And autistic people of all ages face barriers to accessing healthcare that we as professionals can directly mitigate by making our communication, our physical and sensory environments more accessible. Mm-hmm. And by changing our mindsets to be thinking about our patients' experiences through the lens of the neurodiversity paradigm. So the question that led me to start doing what I'm doing now is, why aren't we in the physical therapy profession doing this yet? Um, because we can. Anyways, I graduated PT school about a decade ago. And from the get-go, I was working with a lot of hypermobile patients. I think that like a lot of us who specialize in working with hypermobile people, my personality is such that I'm happy to spend the time with my patients listening Mm -hmm. and understanding their stories. And so I've always found myself supporting people with more complex health histories, people with chronic pain, people who maybe need more time and space to be able to communicate their stories. And this is probably because when I'm a patient, I need this too. So learning about hypermobility spectrum conditions has had to be a part of my learning to serve my patient population. And I think my patient population has always also skewed more towards a higher than average percentage of neurodivergent people because people who tend to have similar communication styles to mine might tend to feel more comfortable with me. Mm -hmm. So now I'd like to just pause and point out that for the first few years of my career and also during PT school, I was pretty continually completely burnt out despite really loving to help my patients. Mm Because I didn't realize that the sensory environment I was operating in and the ways in which my days were scheduled were really completely opposite from what I needed in order to thrive. I was doing what everyone else did and pushing myself through despite feeling totally wiped out at the end of each day Mm -hmm. because I thought that that was just what I needed to do. And so my chronic stress from a mismatch with my environment was actually causing me a lot of health issues. I myself personally have never been a person who would score high on the Baton scale, but I have a tendency towards autonomic dysfunction and immune regulation issues, mm-hmm. gastrointestinal issues, and a variety of areas of musculoskeletal pain Mm -hmm. in the same way that a lot of hypermobile people do. Mm -hmm. And all of these things became really especially problematic once I started practicing and was in chronic overdrive of my sympathetic nervous system. Again, this is all because my environment and my activities, the way that they were paced, were a poor fit for my needs. Mm-hmm. I can relate to all that. The first maybe five years that I practiced as a PT, I just could not believe that this is how people did it. It was so unsustainable and it really came at a great cost to my health. Yeah. And I think this is such an important point that we as clinicians can take away 
and be using when we're thinking about what our patients need, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because we can recognize those. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So at that time, I didn't yet realize that there were ways that my needs were actually different from most people and that I actually could accommodate myself in order to be feeling better on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. So then eventually fast forward a certain number of years, I had a child who eventually was identified as being autistic. And I started doing more reading about autism. I came across the perspectives from people in the autistic self-advocacy community who had a lot of really valuable insight on recognizing and supporting my child's needs. And as I read more about autistic people's experiences, I very quickly recognized that so many of my life experiences matched up with theirs. And I quickly identified that I was also autistic. And that helped me to begin understanding my needs much, much better than I ever had. And I was able to rearrange things in my life so that my needs were better met. And I wasn't in a state of perpetual burnout. And my health drastically improved. My pain improved. My gastrointestinal issues improved. So this major change in my health status was really directly 100% thanks to other autistic people who are sharing their experiences and advice. And from the autistic self-advocacy community, I was able to learn how the differences that we as autistic people have in the rhythms and timing of our movement, our sensory processing, our executive functioning, they can lead to misunderstandings with others. And that can be a life stressor affecting a lot of people. I learned that pushing through stressful situations can actually be more negatively impactful to our health as autistic people than it can be for many people mm-hmm. because our brains don't always tend to habituate to sensory input in the same way that most people's do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so you go into, say, a loud restaurant or a loud PT clinic, right? Mm-hmm. And It turns out that for most people, after the first couple minutes, then all of that background noise is filtered out. But Mm. that's not the case for me. Mm -hmm. And so that's taking up my processing bandwidth. Yeah. So I saw myself, how my health improved really quite a lot once I started seeing my needs for more processing bandwidth, more processing time, pacing my activities, changing my sensory environment. And I realized that there were many other unidentified autistic adults out there, Mm -hmm. including most likely some of my patients, and that I could start to improve my care for a lot of people by considering that they might have unmet needs similar to mine Mm -hmm. that were affecting their health status. And I started to dive into the research that was being done by autistic researchers about what autistic people need from their healthcare professionals. And also around this time, there was a lot of research starting to be published about the common co-occurrence of hypermobility and neurodivergence. And it all kind of came full circle for me. I realized that I needed to start teaching and sharing this information with other clinicians because Like I said before, we all work with autistic patients, and especially those of us who work a lot with hypermobile patients, we're seeing 
more than the average share of autistic or otherwise developmentally neurodivergent people. And we can help a whole lot of our patients have better results with PT and overall achieve better health by understanding developmental neurodivergence and using a neurodiversity affirming approach to tailor our care to meet people's needs. Mm -hmm. We can be cognizant of the types of other support referrals that our patients might need. And I think we're just not yet doing this very well, or if at all, most of the Mm -hmm. time as a profession, but we can. Mm -hmm. I think physical therapists actually are really well equipped to do this because we have this general understanding of our need to support people holistically. Mm -hmm. That's fabulous to hear about. I want to hear some tidbits about some of the low-hanging fruit, so to speak, about how we can do better as clinicians. But before we get there, I would love for you to describe some of the terminology that we often hear around neurodivergence and the various diagnoses or labels that live under that general umbrella. Because I know that some of that terminology can be confusing for people, myself included. Yeah, absolutely. And there is some confusion out there about the language we should be using when discussing neurodiversity and neurodivergence. The word neurodiversity refers to the fact that there is a wide range of neurocognitive functioning styles that's present among the human population. So neurodiversity is just a fact. It is a type of human diversity, just like racial or ethnic or gender diversity. When a person's neurocognitive functioning style falls in any way outside of what that person's culture considers to be typical, we can describe that person as neurodivergent. And the way in which a neurodivergent person differs from their society's norms is their neurodivergence. And there are infinite ways in which a person can be neurodivergent. Some forms of neurodivergence are innate and lifelong, such as autism, ADHD, Down syndrome, cerebral palsy. Other forms of neurodivergence can be acquired, such as anxiety or depression, or traumatic brain injury, stroke, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis. These are all types of neurodivergence. And many types of neurodivergence, once present, will be lifelong. But many types also can be temporary. And if you think about it, almost everyone in this world could be considered neurodivergent for at least some stretch of their life. Mm -hmm. We all go through periods of stress where our functioning is different. We all have things happen to us. And many of us just are wired in a way where our neurocognitive functioning, it always has been and always will be outside of the norm. Mm -hmm. So another word you might see thrown around out there is neurotypical which is a word that means having neurocognitive functioning that's 100% in line with what one's society considers to be normal. But given what we're just talking about, being neurotypical is actually not the most common way of being in the world. The more that I learn about this, I 
don't know if I know very many people who would be considered neurotypical. I don't really know anymore what that looks like. <laughs> well, it's a culturally defined. Yeah. Yeah. I'm right there with you. And so I don't tend to use the word neurotypical that much hmm. because I think it reinforces an inaccurate assumption that the vast majority of human beings are existing and functioning in exactly the way that their culture has deemed to be the quote unquote ideal. Right. right? Yeah. So it really is a great uh, mind shift here to think about neurodiversity as a fact, as a type of human diversity. And if we want to treat humans, say as clinicians, we will have better outcomes if we approach the human population with an understanding of its diversity in this way. Exactly. And so when we use the phrase neurodiversity affirming practice or neurodiversity affirming care, that's really what we mean by that. We mean that we're practicing in a way in which we recognize and accept all the potential different ways that people can function. I'll also point out one other little common language misunderstanding that sometimes comes up around all of this. You'll see this out there pretty frequently, which is for a clinician to describe a patient as neurodiverse. Mm -hmm. So a population can yeah. be neurodiverse as in there can be people with many different types of neurocognitive functioning present in a group. Yeah. But a single person can't be neurodiverse. Yeah. A single person is neurodivergent. So just okay. throwing that out there because that's a common misunderstanding and it all just comes down to grammar. Actually, I'm remembering maybe one of your Instagram posts once where you had some dolls <laughs> and you were just oh, right, the pony dolls, yeah, the pony dolls, <laughs> and you were describing some of these terms and what they mean, and it was so helpful. So, thank you again for clarifying that. Um, so I would love to hear you talk about that overlap between neurodivergence and hypermobility. What is that about? What do we understand about the mechanisms of that overlap? Yep. There has been a lot of research published over the past five years or so on the overlap between hypermobility and some types of developmental neurodivergence, mm -hmm. like autism and ADHD. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking in the hypermobility community about this overlap between and um, hypermobility, then that's really what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. People who are hypermobile are more likely than average to also be autistic or ADHD. Mm -hmm. And people with these forms of neurodivergence are more likely to be hypermobile. Yes. So in both we directions. Have research, right. Yeah. We have research showing both ways. Okay. About 30 to 50% of children with hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome or a hypermobility spectrum disorder diagnosis receive an ADHD diagnosis by their teenage years. So mm -hmm. a third to a half of hypermobile teens have an ADHD diagnosis. And children, children with hypermobility spectrum conditions are more likely than average to have received an autism diagnosis as compared to their peers. One study found that the prevalence of hypermobility was 
50% in a neurodivergent population as compared to 20% in the general population. Mm -hmm. So we know that hypermobility just in the general population is not really that uncommon at all, right? Right. But it just happens to be more common. Folks who are autistic, ADHD, in this particular study that I just quoted, they were also including Tourette and some similar conditions. That same study found that also the more hypermobile joints a neurodivergent person had, the more likely they were to experience dysautonomia and pain. And both autistic people and hypermobile people are more likely than average to experience some types of neurological conditions, um, peripheral neuropathies, Mm. and autonomic and immune dysregulation. Mm. So why do we see this overlap? It's most likely because these are all things that have um, genetic influences, right? And some of these genes tend to be passed down through generations together in families. Uh, I think that's it. Hypermobility and autism and ADHD are all forms of human biodiversity that have been present throughout human history. They've just been called by different names over the centuries, and people who have these traits have had differing experiences of these traits at different points in human history, just depending on their environment and how their culture perceives these sorts of differences. Yeah, so I wonder if as we learn more about the genetic mechanisms of hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and hypermobility spectrum disorders, if we're going to find that it's so complex (laughs) that it includes influences on all these other things. It might. We know, at least for hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, that the cluster of different traits and how those traits are expressed depending on environments and stressors and all these things are rather complex. And I'll say this, there is one kind of problematic narrative that I've seen a bit out there in the hypermobility community, which is that I've heard some people making conjecture that the physiologic or psychological stress of having HEDS or HSD could make a person a hear autistic or ADHD when they are in fact not. And this conjecture is really harmful to our patients in a lot of ways. For one, it shifts the attention away from understanding and learning to accommodate developmental neurodivergence, right? When we dismiss a person's traits as just being due to stress, Mm -hmm. then we completely miss the fact that the person's stress could be diminished by their neurodivergence being acknowledged, understood, and accommodated. Additionally, we have to ask ourselves why we would shy away from acknowledging that a person is autistic or ADHD in the first place. Mm -hmm. Uh, The answer to that is that there has been, over the past 20 to 30 years, a lot of fear-mongering and stigmatizing messaging Mm -hmm. that has been put out there that we've all been exposed to especially about autism and also about ADHD. Despite the fact that these types of neurodivergence are common and have always 
been present as part of human biodiversity. We have all this research that's indicating that probably at least half of our hypermobile patients are autistic or ADHD. And so if you're a clinician working with hypermobile patients, you need to really understand these conditions and not stigmatize them in order to best care for a lot of your patients. Absolutely. I mean, in the same way that we just can look out onto the world and understand that it is a diverse human population that we're in. And that diversity applies to the developmental and cognitive, you know, neurodivergence, like that's part of that diversity, but so is hypermobility. It makes me think there's parallel to what you were saying about autism and ADHD, we could find the similar narratives about hypermobility and yeah, a tendency to dismiss it as a thing, (laughs) you know? So it's kind of threading the needle about acknowledging and accepting diversity in these ways and helping people thrive, (laughs) both of those things. (laughs) Yes, right. That's what it all comes down to. The hypermobile people need their healthcare professionals to understand that there are actually a really wide variety of ways um, that our bodies as human beings can function, like in a big picture sense. Yeah. And when we're talking about neurodiversity, neurodivergent patients need their healthcare professionals to understand exactly that same thing, just from a neurocognitive perspective. Yeah. And that thriving doesn't require you to not be hypermobile anymore or not be autistic anymore. It doesn't require resolving those differences. It just requires understanding them and then providing appropriate treatment and self-care and management and accommodations. Right, exactly. That's the um, social model of disability versus the medical model of disability. The medical model posits that health conditions are due to problems inherent within an individual. And when all of us as healthcare professionals are taught through the lens of the medical model of disability, so we're all taught to look at what's wrong with people and try to fix people. Mm -hmm. But there's another way of looking at this, which is through the social model of disability. There are also some other models, but the most commonly um, understood model that is in comparison to the medical model is the social model, which posits that disability arises from a mismatch between a person and their environment. If we are not able to participate in a certain domain of our life, then the social model of disability prompts us to, as clinicians to ask not what can we do to fix people, but what can we do to make their environments work for them? Mm-hmm. And like you said, there's so many parallels with this that we can be thinking about with the neurodivergent community and the broader hypermobile community and what people need. Absolutely. So speaking of what people need, what can you share about some of the tips or best practices when working with clients or patients who have hypermobility syndromes and 
are neurodivergent. Yeah, absolutely. To my mind, I think a lot of the things that I'd like to mention are points that both clinicians need to be thinking about when supporting their patients, but also that hypermobile people can be thinking about when exploring what kind of self-care options they might benefit from or even what things they might ask for from their clinicians. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And yes, this is a huge topic. I could talk for a couple of days straight on it. Which, right. I guess in a way, this probably comprises some of your trainings, right? <laughs> well, that's right. This is essentially the question of my weekend course. So this will be a little teaser and then everyone should come take your weekend course. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So I'll speak to these things at a high level, but even speaking to it at a high level, it is kind of a long answer, but a lot of these points are really important for clinicians to understand. First of all, we need to be taking the mindset that any of our patients might be neurodivergent and as such need us to be able to meet their access needs in the areas of executive functioning, motor developmental differences, communication, and sensory needs. In order for patients to effectively access and optimally benefit from our care, we need to avoid a one-size-fits-all approach in terms of how we're setting things up. So how we're communicating with our patients, how we're setting up our environment, how we're instructing exercises, how we're structuring our sessions and teaching home programs. Because among neurodivergent patients, there's such a wide range of what people can need in any of those domains. No two people are going to be exactly the same, in terms of what they need from us. So we're not always going to be aware of whether or not any given patient is neurodivergent because depending on the age of your patient population, it's likely that the majority of your patients who are autistic or ADHD are unaware of the fact that they are. Autism is a condition that was first defined in the 1940s. Okay, that doesn't mean autistic people started existing in the 1940s. And people have talked about the prevalence of autism increasing over the years, especially in the 90s and 2000s and since then. And that's because of increased recognition. Mm-hmm. Okay. So most of the people out there in the world who are aware that they are autistic or ADHD were born in the 90s or 2000s or later. Mm -hmm. Similarly, I hear the same thing about hypermobility. Wow, why are there so many more hypermobile people these days? Right, there have always been hypermobile people. Yeah. Yeah, but then we also have to remember that some of our neurodivergent patients who are aware of their neurodivergence are not necessarily going to be sharing these things with you in their intakes. Mm -hmm. Because they know that there's stigma around things like autism and ADHD. Mm -hmm. And they may have even had experiences where they've shared these things with clinicians in the past. Mm -hmm. And the clinicians didn't know what to do with the information. Or maybe even in the past, clinicians have unintentionally said or done some things that were harmful. Mm -hmm. So even if you yourself are a clinician, neurodivergent, yourself, and you think you're pretty good at recognizing neurodivergence in others, you're not going to pick up on some of these things with a lot of your patients, because there are a whole lot of neurodivergent folks 
who learn to mask or camouflage their neurodivergent traits really well in order to stay safe in the world. Mm -hmm. So the question is then, what do we do if we don't know which of our patients are neurodivergent, what their individual access needs might be? And the answer is we need to apply universal design. This idea that for every single person who comes through the door, we need to be prepared to provide a range of things in terms of how we're working with them and how we're setting up our environment. So let's talk about, for example, communication and executive functioning needs, because those two go hand in hand. With every single person, we need to be offering a range of ways to communicate with us and with our office. There needs to be the option to reach us by phone or by email. We need to understand that some patients will actually be able to communicate their more complex questions better with us via email or another form of alternative communication as opposed to verbally. We need to give people plenty of time to reflect and respond to our questions and not rush them. We need to be familiar with how motor developmental differences can affect people's facial expressions and their body language. And because of that, we need to listen to our patients' words instead of making assumptions about their emotions or their intentions based on what we notice visually. Mm -hmm. This is something that I'm so passionate about getting healthcare professionals to understand, especially for the hypermobile community. So if someone isn't making eye contact, that's almost always because they can't effectively communicate while making eye contact. And it's not because they're trying to deceive us. Mm -hmm. This is so important. And on that note, we also need to recognize that many neurodivergent patients have interoceptive differences, meaning differences in how we recognize and process internal body sensations like hunger or thirst or fatigue or pain, and that this can affect how people will be reporting their symptoms to us. If someone has interoceptive differences relating to pain, that can look like a few different things. It could look like someone who has difficulty articulating exactly what their pain feels like or exactly where it's located. It could look like someone who actually appears not register pain until it's very, very intense. Mm -hmm. Could look like someone who experiences pain at a higher level than we might anticipate them to. All of those things can just be due to how an individual person's brain is wired um, and their sensory processing of pain sensations. And so none of these ways of experiencing pain are right or wrong. That's really important for us to understand. Yeah, Um, that's such a good point. It's like to a lot of clinicians, these patients may present in ways that just don't make sense to them yet because they don't understand some of these differences. And I love how you bring in this interoceptive difference. When I'm thinking about myself and all the other hypermobile patients, I'm like, yeah, that's always how it looks. (laughs) 
right, what you're exactly. describing. Right, exactly. And I think that it sets people up to have healthcare professionals dismiss them if the professionals are not taking a neurodiversity affirming approach because mm-hmm. someone comes into an appointment and shares with their healthcare professional a variety of different symptoms that are not so common that maybe they're not able to describe them in a way that makes sense to the clinician and this is why neurodiversity affirming approaches are important right yeah yeah. so anyways uh, just uh, in terms of communication executive functioning thinking about what do we need to be providing people so that they have what they need for their organization. Everything from appointment reminders to clearly communicating the plan for each appointment to getting people what they need in order to successfully implement their home program, mm-hmm. right? Uh, in terms of sensory needs, we need to understand how a person's sensory environment can affect their pain and affect their ability to learn new movement skills. It can affect their ability to concentrate. And we need to understand that no two people are going to have exactly the same sensory needs. So an environment that works well for some people might not work well for others. One thing that's pretty universally helpful is for us to provide quiet spaces without Mm -hmm. a lot of visual distractions, without fluorescent lighting, because these are all things that a lot of people are sensitive to. Mm-hmm. But then again, you might have some patients who actually can move better with some background music. Mm-hmm. So that could be an option you provide. Yeah. And as physical therapists, we can learn about and then educate our patients about how unmet sensory needs can be a life stressor that can contribute to their pain. If someone is wired in a way where they need a lot of proprioceptive and vestibular input, in order to register where their body is in space. And maybe they're not getting that because they're sitting at a desk all day. Mm -hmm. That's going to increase their stress levels. And it's also going to make it harder for them to stay in comfortable postures. And all of that is going to affect their pain. Mm -hmm. If certain types of background noise are overstimulating for a person and they're often in environments with that sound, then that's going to be putting them into sympathetic overdrive and increasing their pain. So this is absolutely within our scope as PTs to understand and educate about at a high level. Mm -hmm. And also at the same time, we need to have occupational therapists that we can refer to who can help people develop a more detailed understanding of their sensory needs and how to meet them. Mm -hmm. If you find that you have patients who need help getting started with considering their sensory needs and to what degree any unmet needs might be affecting their pain or other symptoms. I actually have a workbook that I've developed and that I have on my website that can be a resource for those folks. Excellent. I'll definitely have you let everyone know exactly where they can find all the things that you're doing. Yeah, for sure. It's fascinating to me because one of the things I've been very interested in is this idea of unmet sensory needs. Oftentimes when we think about the sensory sensitivities that a lot of folks have who are neurodivergent, we think about how can we turn down the inputs, like the music and the lights. But one thing I find a lot working with hypermobile patients and myself is that 
I need a lot of sensation input to my body to make it feel better. <laughs> and yeah. it's this idea of this unmet sensory need, the way I get it met is through movement. Movement is a sensation, but specifically I get on therapy balls and do a lot of self-massage because I, I really need that bigger hit of sensation. Is that part of what you're talking about too? Yeah, absolutely. There are so many people in the world who need more sensory input than their environments provide. Thinking about people just throughout the lifespan, we can all imagine going back to our childhoods, thinking of ourselves or others that we might have known. Some people just need to move in order to be comfortable, in order to learn and in order to connect with their bodies. And some people need a lot of input of all sorts of different kinds in order to move best. Something that I've personally found really interesting is that I'll have some patients who might have difficulty coordinating the steps of an exercise say something like a supine heel slide exercise where we're trying to maintain neutral spine, right? Mm -hmm. That's something so many of us are familiar with. But that same person, if I get them on an unstable surface and challenge their proprioception, can have all of their muscles kick in in the way that we want to see happen yeah. without them having to think about it. That's, so that's yeah. an example of how we can be using a person's sensory processing profile in order to figure out what's going to work best for them when we're instructing exercise and teaching other movement strategies. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. I see that too in um, level of resistance. I often find that when uh, someone has a hard time coordinating a movement, adding more resistance to it, it fixes it. <laughs> it's like, oh, That's now right. I get it because now That's I'm right. stimulated enough for it to make sense. They need more of that input. Exactly. And so that's something where I think it's, uh, it's an art of selecting the right exercise and ways of instructing exercise for our patients, especially our hypermobile patients who might have sensory processing difficulties, because mm -hmm. we need to be conscious of not overloading tissues that might not be ready yet for a given load, but at the same time, we can fall into the trap of making our exercises not enough. That's yeah. usually where most of us would err towards, just to quote, stay safe, where even just a little bit more resistance really stimulates the whole body to understand this movement better. So we don't have to overload before we're ready, but just to be willing to experiment with a little bit of that can be really helpful. That's right. It's a balance yeah. for each person. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there are so many other things that we could talk about here in mm -hmm. terms of motor developmental differences. I think that just at a very high level with that, as physical therapists, we need to recognize that because a lot of our hypermobile patients are neurodivergent and because pretty much all autistic and most ADHD people have 
some degree of developmental coordination difficulty, that's something that we need to be considering when we're tailoring our movement strategies for folks. And we need to be thinking through a little bit of a neuro PT lens when deciding what might work well for some people. And we have to wrap our minds around the fact that many of our hypermobile patients who are experiencing mental health concerns, chronic anxiety or depression, burnout, PTSD, all of these things that are more prevalent in the hypermobile population, all of this can potentially have unaccommodated autism and or ADHD underlying it as one factor. And it's critical for us to recognize that autism and ADHD are not mental health conditions in and of themselves. They're descriptions for ways in which a person's needs are different from the norm. Mm -hmm. And if a person's needs are not met, because they're being pushed to function in environments and social situations that aren't healthy for them, then that can have negative mental health consequences. We have to be aware that when we're referring people for support, we need to be referring to mental health clinicians who are trained in neurodiversity-affirming approaches in order for people to have the best chance at actually identifying their needs and getting them met. Otherwise, we're not going to be setting people up for success. Oh, really good point. So I feel like I've learned so much in the last hour. It's so great. Are there any last thoughts you want to share on any of these topics before we give ways to find out more about you and things like that? One last thing that I'll share is that though there is still a need for better published guidelines on supporting autistic patients, there are a couple of guidelines that have been published that are useful for clinicians to know about. One of those is the autistic space framework for meeting autistic needs in healthcare settings, which was published earlier this year by Mary Doherty, who is a physician based in the UK who leads Autistic Doctors International. The second resource that people should be aware of is a set of guidelines called More Than Words, Communication Guidelines for Healthcare Professionals. And this also came out of the UK. I'm happy to share links for both of these the listeners could follow in order to access them. Great. And then tell us about where we can learn more about your work and your trainings. Yeah. For those folks who use social media, I, on Instagram and threads now, my handle is Autistic Physical Therapist. I chose a name that I hoped would be pretty um, self-explanatory there. I have a website where you can find information about my trainings, and I also have a bunch of recommended readings and some information in my blog, and all of that is at iriswarshall.com. And I'm very happy to connect with any physical therapists or other professionals out there who have questions about any of these things, about supporting their neurodivergent patients, about this overlap um, between neurodivergence and hypermobility. I love connecting with people and meeting other folks who are interested in doing this work. And so thank you, Libby, for reaching out to have this conversation. Thank you so much for being here. It's been really great to get your insights and 
like I said, I've learned so much in the last hour. You have a, an amazing way to explain complex things in a very accessible way. <laughs> so thank you so much. And thank you listeners for uh, being here as well. And we'll catch you on the next episode. Mm -hmm.